You're there. Sweet. I'm here. All right. So, um, do no, we start with the introduction or do we talk about... No, we should start with an introduction. Okay. Number five. Episode five. Episode five. Wow, man. We're Cranking them away. Um, so, uh, welcome to Talking in the Chasm. A compassionate, controversial conversation between best friends. Holy man. And the atheist. The atheist. The, I'm the atheist, man. <laughs> it's just one of us. Everybody else is a pretender. But, uh, yeah. And your name is Felix. My name is Felix. And I'm Matthew. And uh, Matthew. All right, so what are we talking about today? Today, we wanted to look at economic materialism. We talked about metaphysical materialism. Right. But consumerism, economics, money how it runs the world and controls things. Right. So where should we start? you have a starting point? Um, I don't... Uh, I, we, you... I was thinking of big corporations and sure. stuff, you know. Uh, Let's do it. it I, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, when Google started, you know, they had the slogan was, uh, don't be evil, mm -hmm. you know. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they become this huge corporation. And then, and then it's it gets so big that it's kind of beyond the control of just a few people. It becomes a board and all this stuff. And then at some point, they're talking to China. And saying, okay, well, China will let us do Google there as long as we edit out the Tiananmen Square thing, mm -hmm. and we have to lie about history. And then when that's that's evil, mm -hmm. so you know, at some point you're going to get to this gray area. And my thought was, does a does the size of the company sort of uh, make evil a prerequisite? You know what I mean? Like after you get so big, yeah, does it? Um, but my, my, my daughter, Magalie, works at Starbucks, and that's a huge, huge company. But they're very concerned about mental health, and they're concerned about saving the planet, and they, they, they locally source what they can, and they, they fair trade as much as they can. You know, it just seems like a good company. They, they pay for education for their employees. Uh, they can all go to college for free at the University of Arizona. They have a program where they help you buy a car. They pay for an Uber if it's after dark. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. they, they seem like a really good company, and yet they're huge. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing, right? I have a friend who's uh, who, who runs uh, a fund, a mutual, I don't know if it's a mutual fund, but some kind of fund. And they're very large, but um, in that in their case, they've restricted their fund. And there's there's a bunch of them. There's just one of them. It's a socially responsible fund, but there's no there. They do medical, but not abortion, not cosmetic. Um, they don't do munitions or weapons. They don't do alcohol or tobacco, like and it's things that people don't often think about, like. Who cares about tobacco anymore? What does that matter? But it actually does quite a bit. Like the the emerging markets for tobacco is not in America. It's children in Indonesia. Right. And so these are very exploitive companies, and it's in everybody's that 
investing is a is a huge part I think to this whole thing not not for you and I I don't I don't have a big portfolio I don't no. know if you do I went ahead and deleted the stocks <laughs> app on my phone uh, it just made me feel bad like I'm not responsible yeah I but but for people who do I think you just throw your money in a hole and it's someone else's job to make it grow and it's it is worth being mindful that you know one of the principles, like it or not, about a capitalist economy is that your dollars do equate some kind of um, endorsement. Like where you spend your money right. is perpetuating something. And, and there are times when I think it makes more or less sense to be mindful of that. I was, when I was uh, teaching my children, we, had a, we spent a time dealing with slave, child labor. And looking, we looked a little bit at the history of American child labor, but it's still very common in other parts of the world. You know, you have children being chained to looms in Pakistan and right. horrible, horrible, atrocious things. Children working in mines and in coffee plantations and cocoa plantations. And we began to think, well, how could we be more responsible with our money? What could we do to promote good instead of tacitly endorse evil so we did a thought experiment we actually spent a year trying not to buy anything that wasn't fair traded or or um, or American not that we not as a nationalist thing I just knew if it's an American company they're not using child labor so we did that for a year and it's surprisingly hard to find a dish soap that's not made in China that you don't know where the sourcing is from. Right. But w- one, of the, one of the outcomes of that is that we began to make some decisions about real value. Um, how long would it take me to make this garment? How long would it take if I was to sit down with yarn and make socks? How long would right. that take me? Even if I had a setup to do it. And thinking about my commodities uh, in the terms of real value. Because if you can buy a pack of socks at Walmart, 12 pairs of socks for $3, they don't really cost $3. Somebody's paying for what those really cost somewhere else in the supply chain. Uh, Markets of scale can only do so much. They're impressive, but they can only do so much. Well, I thought about that, actually. I thought about... um because like a Primark or something opened uh-huh. up and everything is so cheap and yeah. I'm like how can it be yeah you know and when I think about a shirt right like you know you can buy a shirt for like $15 but can you really make a shirt mm-hmm. for $15 at retail I mean is that even really so possible think about what without the- some sort of somewhere along the line cutting some corner you know without there being some labor law that's being overlooked or some 24-hour work, you know, I mean... Or some Taiwanese factory. Right, and and the problem now is that that's what people expect to pay for a shirt, is $15. Yeah, that's right. So even though a shirt should cost $50, we're not willing to pay that, right? Well, and what it would require, what it required when we began, we began... We've, it's so easy to get away from, so I don't, I don't consider myself having saintly virtue in regards to my, my consumerism. But it's something that I think about from time to time. And what you have to do if you want to engage with the world in that way is you have to say, I'd rather have three pairs of socks that I know are moral or right, equitable right. 
and not have 50 pairs of socks in my drawer. Right. And, and you know, it's helpful for a lot. It's not just helpful for those unseen faces in supply chains. It's also helpful for, I think, us as individuals, especially as Americans, to reevaluate. Like, is it sensible to have 50 pairs of socks in a drawer? Like, is that right. really right. where we should be? I mean, you live in a very small space, so you make those kinds of decisions all the time. Like, right. this has but to I fit also, in the space. I'm not a full-on minimalist, but I definitely live that way. And I read the, you know, KonMari uh-huh. uh, thing, and, 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 and it makes a lot of sense, right? Every object, I'm like, wow, does this spark joy? Is this something that I use and want? Yeah. And it's amazing how many things you have that you don't use or want. Yeah. Um, especially clothing. I, I, you know, I read that book and then I, I, I cut out, I think 60% of my clothes. Is that so, right? You know, I wear this shirt a couple times a year. Somebody else is going to wear it every day. I yeah. don't need this. Yeah. So, um, the only problem with, with, um, with the, with that sort of line of thinking about researching money, uh, where it goes and how, yeah. you know, like how, when you buy a shirt, you know, is this, is this made ethically? Um, is that's only once removed. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you don't know if I buy a product from this company that the profits don't get into a mutual fund that goes to the, you know, I mean, it's like, you, it's you can't really web. get away with it. Yeah. And also, like I remember at one point we, we stopped ordering Domino's pizza. And I don't remember. I think it might've been because they were uh, pro-choice or something like, yeah. or pro, pro, uh, pro, pro-life uh, pro or something like that. Because you, you dirty pro-lifers, yeah. <laughs> No, but it was, it was some political reason, you know, and I was like, okay, well, we won't order Donuts, that's fine. But then it occurred to me, I don't know about the Coke I just drank. I don't know about, you yeah. know, where this beef comes from. It's like, if I researched every single yeah. thing that I purchased, I, that's all I would ever do with yeah. my time, right? And at some point, you're going to come down to, it's just really good pizza, and I just, you know, and that maybe that's unethical to, to, to sort of think in that way, but... but you can't research and even if you did that's only one step you can't go you know follow the money from where it is i mean you know you can you can vote against practices that you you know um and and, and you can research and you can say i don't think you can buy a shirt for 15 dollars. Mm-hmm. so therefore i will not buy a shirt for 15 dollars retail anymore um i think that there's um you're right that it, it it's a very very tangled web and we see the same thing in in christian circles like we're we're going to use sam's club instead of costco because costco's pro-choice and they lobby for right lgbt or whatever the case may be it happens on both sides of the political aisle and and i'm i'm disinclined towards that kind of rationale i mean i suppose that there could be some some cases that would be so egregious that I would feel like some some entities that were so immoral that I didn't want to to patronize them, but it would be a really extreme case because, and this is what I say every time a Christian boycott comes up, whether it's Disney or Costco or whoever it is, is that if I was judging corporations by my ethical standards, yeah. I would live in a mud hut in a in the, right. in the woods somewhere I wouldn't own anything and so I don't have expectations and there's actually a Christian rationale for that there's a passage in the in the in this, one of the Paul, one of Paul's letters to the churches and he says we judge those within in the church God judges those without 
Otherwise, you'd have to come out of the world. So what he's saying is that for for us, we hold each other to the standards of the Christian worldview. People that are not a part of the church, that's not our business. We don't have to. We don't have to expect that everyone around us is beholden to our particular views. So I don't have to have any. I I don't have to have any qualms about if this company is moral because it's almost like we we assume the citizens united decision that these entities are kind of people like that they're that they're some that they're an a personality instead of yeah a business with a thousand million different moving parts yeah i want to talk about the ford motor company briefly but it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, in talking about this thing we want to talk about in a second um Irene said, my daughter, if we're going to treat companies as people, we should also prosecute them as people, right? But we don't do that. Sure I mean, enough. you know, we don't hold them to, to laws. Mm-hmm. So um, let me just, just talk about the, the four, because when I was thinking about evil in corporations, um, Lee Iacocca died recently, mm. and everybody was like, oh my God, such a hero, this amazing businessman. And I just see him as this just horrible horrible human being and the there's a few examples but the one that I want to talk about is the the Ford Pinto oh yeah so the VW Beetle was the most popular selling car in America and Ford didn't have a tiny what they called subcompact car right so Lee Iacocca is like okay we need a subcompact car and here's the deal it's going to cost less than two thousand dollars and it's going to weigh less than two thousand pounds period no right? matter what. And we're going to do this in 24 months. And usually it takes like, I don't know, 48 months or 56 months or something from design to thing. Mm-hmm. But once you start the um, the metal stamping process, there's no going back, you know, without... The die is cast. Yeah, literally, yes. So, um, although that's a different uh, analogy, but yes, <laughs> the die is cast. Um and the safety experts, you know, they were safety testing as they were designing it, mm-hmm. right? And the safety people realized that this the gas tank was too close to the bumper, and every time there was a hit of more than like 15 miles an hour, it would it would puncture the gas um, gas tank gas tank, and and you know, much faster than that, it ends up spraying gas everywhere, and there rolls and sparks, and there's these fiery explosions, and so they did a, a test of uh, I think. 40 crash tests and 38 of them resulted in a fire so two of them that didn't one of them was when they used the impala gas tank which is in the center it's it's really great and then the other one was when they used this piece of plastic that they put in between the bumper and the thing so they went up to lee iacocca and they said here's the you know we could use the impala here's the solution yeah we can use this impala gas tank and he said that that will take away trunk space and one of the engineers is like yeah you could only put one set of golf clubs in the trunk you know so we can't have that and then the the piece of plastic cost one dollar and it weighed one pound and Lee Cook was like that is something we don't need safety doesn't sell was his his his, his words right so Everything that these engineers did, iCook was like, not happening, not happening. So they knew that this product wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they did what they could, but there was nothing that they could do, right? It it's, comes down to this man who, you know, this decision. And, um, and they, they called it Lee's car. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, this, there was a, you know, he really didn't have anything to do with it. He 
spearheaded this Pinto Direct thing, right? Supervision. And so they put out the Ford Pinto and people start dying in horrible ways, burning to death alive in their cars and being horribly disfigured. And there's, they're not totally sure of the, of, of the, the, the death toll, but we're talking, they said something like 300 people died in this, in this car that could have completely been avoided using this $1 piece of plastic, but those 300 people died. And here's, that's evil, right? But what's really evil is the next thing that happened, and that is they went to Lee Iacocca and they said, hundreds of people are dying, we have to recall this car. And so he sat down with a bunch of uh, number crunchers and they decided how much would it cost to recall the cars versus how much would it cost to, to pay, pay the lawsuits. to pay out insurance claims and lawsuits, right? And in order to do that, they had to put a value on human life, and the value was $200,700. That was what the, the value was, right? That was so, going to be their settlement figure. For right. That. So they decided it's just cheaper not to recall the cars. So they didn't recall the cars. Let them die. And I can guarantee you that Lee Iacocca's daughter didn't drive a Pinto. Yeah. You know? And that just... I did. I had one in high school. My, my mother had one. I drove. I, she drove me to school every day. Yeah. I mean, that... You know, and the, and that this man is celebrated after he dies. It just it you blows know, mine my mind. caught on fire. Did it? It wasn't. It wasn't an accident. People flipped it over and lit it on fire, but it oh, did die oh, okay. a fiery death. Because when it turned over, that was another thing. It often, when it got hit, it also flipped over. And the way that it got hit, you know, you couldn't write this nightmare. But the way that it got hit was such that the doors wouldn't open. Mm. So, anyway, um, so so. This company then was responsible for the death of, of you know, hundreds of people because of a decision that they made knowing it would kill people. They knew people are going to die, right? So, But we're going to make the decision anyway. And yet, they're still around. They didn't go to prison for the rest of their lives, right? The, the company itself wasn't damaged except that the joke was sort of on them in the end because they ended up paying 40 million dollars for each lawsuit and you know the courts decided okay we're going to make an example of this and, yeah. and it turned out human life was worth more than two hundred thousand dollars but still still not enough right people do, i mean you know I, I, the moral thing I, I mean who in the world would say okay we don't want one more person to die we're going to stop production yeah. right now yeah. or you know obviously before it's like oh a dollar oh, it's going to be a pound heavier okay you know, it's going to cost a dollar more. So maybe the VW Beetle costs two thousand seventy dollars, and mm. then we're going to cost two thousand seventy-five. It's like, well, then people are going to buy the Beetle. So, eh, you know, people don't know that that they're buying a death trap. Mm -hmm. So to me, that is like pure evil. And those decisions are made all the time. You know, is it more is it uh, more economically feasible to kill people? And pay claims than it would be to recall a product and look bad and, and save people's lives. So, do you think, do you think that's a design feature of capitalism as as an economic structure? And what I mean by that is, let's let's do another thought experiment. Let's talk about other industries. So, Philip Morris would be a perfect correlation to that. They knew people yeah. were going to die from cigarettes, and they didn't put out the warnings and they didn't want people to know and they hid research and about how bad it was. And there's question about whether they purposely made them worse for addiction. Yeah. But what about like what about the alcohol industry? And I'm 
I'm not a prohibitionist. I don't I don't believe in prohibition right. laws. I don't think they work well. Um, but but if you're running Anheuser Busch or the local the local craft brewery, you know that that whatever percentage of traffic accidents in your area are going to come from your product. Right. Is are those people as morally culpable as Lee Iacocca for making his pintos? Right. The there's a huge difference. Okay. One is for the beer, you are creating a product that people enjoy and uh-huh. that people use and that the majority of people use in a responsible way. If people are irresponsible, that you can't control people from drinking too much beer, uh-huh. right? Um, Lee Iacocca was, was, was presented with physical evidence that people will die. Yeah. Without this, without um, fixing these safety issues, people will die. And then they did die, hundreds of people, and then they said, we gotta stop this madness, and he said no. Yeah. So that is an actual decision to kill people. Yeah. You know, whereas the craft beer person, I mean, I think a, a more uh, sort of complex moral question would be, okay, you're going to make nicotine in the cigarettes to make them more addictive. Is that even bad? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're making chocolate product. milk, yeah. you make it as delicious as you can make it, knowing that people are going to get diabetes and die. I mean, some people are going to drink too much and they're going to die because of the sugar intake. You know, the idea of making any product is to make it so good that people can't live can't without it, it, right? I mean, that's that's the goal. Yeah. So do you fault them for that? I mean, you know, so do 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 some people enjoy cigarettes and don't die? Uh, you know, I, I mean, here's something that this is a tough one because there's evidence that it leads directly to lung cancer. Absolutely. It's, it's causation, not correlation. It is yeah. absolutely causation. So maybe maybe openness and transparency about what you're getting is is as close as you can get to morality in regards to that. Whether you're talking about nutritional information or calorie or ingredients or whatever, yeah. that that there should be full disclosure. And I think our society's done fairly well at that. We're going in that direction. Yeah. I mean, what sucks is that the the government is is forcing, forcing companies people. to do that. But let me ask you this, just to play with play with the idea so does the craft beer rationale apply to am, to ammunition and gun manufacture well because they're making something that's going to be right that's I supposed mean, to be used in a responsible way and if is it not their fault if people use them wrongly right to, to me i'm very anti-gun and a gun is a machine designed to end human life mm-hmm. that's what it is so there's no equation where, you, to me, where you're going to put a gun into that equation and it's going to make things better. You know, I would say, I mean, even with with the police, mm-hmm. you know, the the invention of the taser, I think, is a pretty amazing thing, and it has saved lots and lots of lives. Um, In spite of its abuses. Yeah, but there are ways around. But it's better to be abused with a taser than a nine millimeter. Than a gun, yeah. So there are ways around. Um, around killing people but um so to say oh we're gonna make hollow point bullets okay a hollow point bullet why you don't need that for target practice what's what is that for it's to spread so that it causes as much damage to a human being it's as possible. the same as the nicotine it's not even principle, used though. for deer it's the same as the nicotine principle and it is people use it's so i come from the west and and i actually come from gun culture families. Mm-hmm. I, I don't own any guns. 
Uh, I used to hunt, um, and I used to be a part of the pro-Second Amendment movement before I was a Christian. And I grew up in a home that was very pro-gun. And I was raised around guns, and I enjoyed them uh, as fun things to do. I also, where I come from out west, you know, when you're hunting deer, when you're hunting mule deer, you're shooting several hundred yard shots. And so how, how much is, um, you know, what's the handful of a thousand people that actually do that in, in America? But nonetheless, if you're one of those people, the idea of having very high powered ammunition and very long range rifles is how they put food on their table. I think, though, that we should probably table. I'm more interested in economics for this yeah. because we can do a whole, yeah. a whole episode on on guns and violence. But the economic questions are what are really fascinating in in regards to this. Is because how how we evaluate the morality of industry of product product of production and consumption is a pretty tricky thing. Right. I mean, my daughter is a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. She's a vegetarian because she loves animals, uh-huh. and cows make her smile, and she just uh, it makes her cry to think about the fact that they're killing each other. And then she watches lots of YouTube videos about how the industrial uh, meat farming happens, and that just blew her mind, and she's just horrified. But, you know, I tell her, do you like your iPhone? Because you can't have one without the other. Yeah. I mean, they used to be that we all were farmers, mm-hmm. and we all grew our, grew our own food, and we uh, took care of our own cows, and we slaughtered our own cows in a, in a uh, uh, humane way as we possibly could, and we ate them, and it was just part of life. It was accepting. And then we all moved to the city, and our jobs became fragmented, and you started working on microchips, and you started working on bulletproof glass, and you started working on yeah. wires, and then someone needs to make food, mm-hmm. and there's millions of people in the city, and the only way that you can make millions and millions of pounds of beef is to consolidate. I mean, it's, just, it's yeah. very difficult. So because there's a 2% of the country is farmers, it allows 98% of the country to, to make iPhones yeah. and to do other things like that. So, um, you know, the solution, obviously, is live off the grid, throw your iPhone away, um, grow your own food, don't buy anything, don't use money at all, and, uh, you know, why don't we do that? That's, that's the question, morally. If yeah. that that's what we should do, why? Why do I have an? I mean, you know, this 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 iPad is ridiculously expensive. This watch is like four hundred dollars. It's ridiculous. I don't need that, and I know for a fact that there's starving people all over the world. Shouldn't I sell this and send the money to them? I mean, shouldn't I figure it out? It's like, what? At what point is it too much? You mm-hmm. know, people people say, well, you know, a uh, hundred billion dollars is too much money for one person to have. Jeff Bezos shouldn't have that much money. It's too much of a percentage of the world's income. And I do agree with that. But at what point do you make enough money so that people now say, you can't have that, that's too much? Where is, where is that line? Because honestly, $5 is too much. Because right now, for $5, somebody could, life could be saved, and we are, are knowingly you know, uh-huh. allowing that to happen. What, have you ever done the World Economic Index? No. There's a website where you can put in your annual income, and it will scale you oh, yeah. in the world. Yeah, 
and brother, we're all one percent. All one percent. Oh, for sure. No, I definitely am aware of that. It's a I I, um, I, I, I struggle with those things quite a bit. Yeah. I don't I mean, know what the Jesus. The vow, vow of poverty, right? Isn't that part of his thing? I mean, so the vow does, of poverty yeah. is I am not going to to hoard. You know, I, I'm not going to to, to to keep what I don't need. Mm-hmm. And, and, and instead, I'm going to help my fellow man. I he, mean, lives an exam- he, he lives as an example. Jesus, somebody comes to him one time and he says, uh, hey, I want to follow you. And he says, you want to follow me? I, I don't. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. He says the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't know where he's going to lay his head. Is that you want to follow me? Another guy comes to him. The, this is a famous story of the rich young ruler, and he says, "Hey Jesus, I, I, w- I want to go to heaven." And Jesus says, "Well, you know the law, and he's do the law." And he says, "I've done all that since I was young." And he says, "There's only one thing you're lacking: sell that you have and give to the poor." And come and follow me, and this radical renunciation uh, is is a tenant of Christianity. It's often neglected tenant, and it's it's one of those things. Uh, and I think this is where the real Jesus is. And forget Christendom, yeah, forget yeah. all the huff and the puff and the history and the and the temples and the cathedrals. The real Jesus is at this place where you don't ever get to really understand him or dismiss him, where you always have to wrestle with. What does he really mean? How how deeply is that supposed to cut at me? What what is what would he actually say about where I'm at? Right. I mean, I think we know what he means. And I think that if we everyone lived a Christ like life, the world would be perfect. It would be perfect. But I'm aware that I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And I have this watch and I and I'm gonna have it tomorrow, you know? And I, you know, I, I struggle because I, I, I'm not a perfectly moral person, you know, and that's, just, that's an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has nothing to do with religion. I mean, this has to do with, with economics. You know, there are people starving to death. There's homeless people on the street. Um, there was a, the longest time I didn't give homeless people money at mm-hmm. all because I was like, you know, I, I don't want to feed into this, right? I don't want to give the money to, to allow that to be a thing. That, oh, uh, you, you can make money. You can survive by just doing nothing, right? And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, if I, you don't give the money, then they're going to have to figure out something else. Um, but now I give money whenever I possibly can. I just feel like, wow, this is a person who, yeah, I don't know their story. Yeah. I don't know how they got to where they are. Yeah. And, you know, one day I might be where they are. Mm-hmm. Um and I can certainly spare this five bucks. So um, I, I try to do that. It doesn't make me feel much better. I mean, you know, I, I, these, are, these are tough things. I mean, we can try our best to not be outwardly evil. I mean, that's, that's something. Um, Lee Iacocca was outwardly evil. I mean, there's no talking out of this one there's no angle at which that's okay to me i think one of the worst there there's there's two sort of maxims in this american culture that i think are the ruination of 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 us one is it's just business like it's a special category it's It's just business i I just i kicked you in the face but it's just business you know it's not personal it's business right it's just business means I can do whatever I want it means what you know 
it, it's just business. We, we, we decided it cost more to recall the cars than to pay off the insurance claims. It's just business. I mean, it's a bottom line. We're looking for our, you know, we're, we're watching out for our shareholders. Mm-hmm. It's business. You know, n- no, it isn't just business. It's l- people's lives. Okay? It's just business is the dumbest excuse ever and it's the most used I mean it's just that, that it's totally fine to do this because of money is involved mm-hmm. you know um, and then the other one is we'll talk another time it's all's fair in love and war no it isn't you know it isn't nothing's fair you can war. be good yeah. you can be a good person uh-huh. um, so I, I just I wrote a few notes here one of them is what would you say God's idea is of wealth distribution and that plays a little bit into what we were talking about. Shouldn't we all just take a vow of poverty? Yeah. Shouldn't we distribute the wealth in such a way? I mean, you know, we all want Jeff Bezos to give 90% of his money to the poor, but what? why don't I give 90% of my money to the poor? I, I could live with 10%. Yeah. It's, uh, so I think that's a great question. I, one of the things that I look at is that um, there was, if, if you look at, the Old Testament among the Hebrew, the, the, the organization and society structured in the Old Testament is intended to be a genuine theocracy. It was really supposed to be a nation run by God. That was the intention of the Mosaic Law and what God was doing in Israel. And when you look at how he set up society, it's very interesting because here's, so here's the problem before we get to that, that, that analogy. The problem is you have to weigh things like that, that avarice, that monstrous greed on the one hand with some real statistics about technological improvement, scientific improvement, health improvement. And it is very true, I think, to say that even the world's poor are better today than they were a hundred years ago. There, is been, there has been an economic tide that's risen all boats. So you can't. We can't ignore that. It's right. not. It's it's not unconnected to the discussion. And how much do we have to put up with the avarice and greed in order to have technological improvements and the things that are happening in the world? Uh, and who could know? But what? So those are the the tensions that we have, and it's why. It's why I, I, I end up at the end of my analyses becoming this kind of reluctant capitalist. Like I'm uncomfortable with a lot of things about it. But I'm uncomfortable with the with the potential alternatives. So so when I go back to the Old Testament again and I look at how did God set up an economy, for instance, that's a very intriguing idea. What kind of economy would God set up? There is two things. There is a system of private property ownership, but it is not unmitigated private property ownership. So there, it's a controlled private property. So what God did was like so there were certain laws. If you had a field. You can't, okay, you're going to thresh your field, your wheat field. There's some laws that apply as a farmer, some Jewish laws. You can't muzzle your ox. He gets to eat while he works. God cares even about that animal working mm-hmm. in the field. You can't control the animal. He's doing the work. He gets to eat the right. food of his work. So, you, so even the animals are cared for. The land is cared for. You are supposed to rest your field every seven years. So the earth itself, right. environmental concerns were built into God's economic structures. You had to, you could not harvest the corners of your field. So you imagine you're taking your, your, 
your implements across the field and instead of going corner to corner and corner to corner like we do in you would make a circle and that corner of the field was left for the poor that was a place for for whoever lived in that area to know there was some provision for them there's a social safety net even in the agronomy of Israel for people who couldn't care for themselves for widows for the dispossessed I mean you can you can certainly apply that to today's politics I mean I I consider myself a socialist Uh Um, I've I've lived in France and I've lived in America I've lived places you know in France there's which isn't a perfect society I mean there's no such thing but um, in France the government you know the people decided mm-hmm. at you know what 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 do we want our citizens to be and they decided they want their citizens to be educated mm-hmm. and healthy mm-hmm. so the social floor is you're educated and healthy education's free through college you know you, it's, it's free because we want you to be educated mm-hmm. and healthcare is free because we want you to be healthy mm-hmm. um and they say, oh, it's on the not assumption really... that you're more productive if you're educated and healthy. Exactly, and they're and they're like, oh, it's people say, well, it's not really free. You pay fifty percent of your income or sixty percent of your income. Me, personally, right now, I spend forty-five percent of my income towards health care and taxes. It's a lot. And and four hundred one k and other stuff like that, which I could not not do. But I am have a family of uh, five, and I pay. Uh, Seventeen hundred dollars a month for health care, and if I go to the emergency room, it's five hundred dollars, and if I get medication, it's fifty dollars a bottle. I mean, it's it's so crazy that that to 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 talk of tweaking it is just outrageous. We need to just completely you know destroy the whole thing. But we'll get into politics another time. But the point is that. That the, that the poor the eat, eat the corners yeah. is a sort of a social floor. Yeah. You know, it's like we care about disabled people and poor people and old people and uh-huh. people who are unable to work for whatever reason. Um, so I, I, I love the idea of toying with different ways of making that happen. I, socialism is one, but universal income and other things. I mean, my, my big problem is that we don't try anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, oh, yeah, it sucks that there's a... That there's a mass shooting every couple of days and children get shot in schools and that just sucks. But we don't try anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- let's try no guns. Let's try no laws whatsoever and everybody can have guns. I mean, j- let's just try stuff. Well, we you know, do instead try of just things. Complain. We do try things, but I, maybe we don't try enough. Like, you know, Clinton had the assault weapons ban during the late 90s. I remember that well. Yeah, we try things like little incremental, yeah. like little shaving off. It's like, you know, uh, but we don't. We but haven't it's tried. We're so, I, it's because we're so big. It's the Google phenomenon. Yeah. You can say, as America, we want to do no evil or we want to take care of the poor. Yeah. But it's so big with so many moving parts, and maybe, maybe the maybe the wave of the future is to turn the corner away from globalism and start. I think there was a food movement about you know local food yeah. for a while, and but maybe we need to start thinking about everything in local. Communities I, I read an article that said that um, that people you know moved from the suburbs into the cities. It became hip to do that, yeah. right? And now the cities are so expensive that they can't stay there. But the suburbs are so expensive that they can't stay there either. Yeah. So they're making little communities 
that are, are sort of around a central square where there's like a bunch of shops and things you, that, 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 that you can do, but you can also live there. And, you know, and I was explaining this article that I read to Sarah, and Sarah's like, you mean like a town? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah, a village. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, I, I've always said this. I'm a, I'm a shy introvert, and I, I say I don't like people. You know, that's not really true. Like, I love a person, mm-hmm. and I love little groups of people, and I love going over to your house. I love family, and I love little groups. But I don't like big groups of people, mm-hmm. you know? I like a person. I don't like people. Mm-hmm. And in the way, the way that we maybe stop Google from happening, or the huge government, is maybe these little villages mm-hmm. is how we live. And then the little villages decide how they want to live. Yeah, And if there's you don't want to have guns in houses where your children play then maybe you go to the village that doesn't do that and they're similar enough that it's okay and they're close enough so Mm -hmm. that it's okay you know what I mean yeah Um, because when you think about it uh, you you know you try to have a a meeting with 20 people and there's a lot of chaos and you know there's hundreds of thousands of people live in cities and then millions of people and then there's hundreds of millions of people and then you've got a country like do you know culturally how different uh, Maine is from uh, Florida, South, South Florida. Alabama? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just, uh, you know, it's a different language practically. So I think that I'm, I'm hopeful that um, that we can actually reproduce that. And even in urban environments, I mean, Boston used to be a city of neighborhoods. They were There was a lot of problems with that. They were ethnically exclusionary and all kinds of things that were problems. But at least you, you know, if you lived in the North End, all the Nonas sticking their heads out the window were watching all the children and knew who was who and what was going on. And that that sense of community, and that's how we migrated towards urban areas with it was with the intention of community, and we've kept our own senses of community uh, for those reasons, so that there's some kind of cohesion there's some kind of i'm not adrift in this big sea of humanity and concrete all on my own but i have a people and a place and a story and a purpose and if you put those things in a group in the hands of a group of people i don't care who they are if you give them belonging and purpose and community and relationships that care for them that's what creates healthy humanity and and regardless of the superstructures that we happen to live in and around we can do that all the time and so the more that we can push towards some kind of intentionality with the people around us some kind of commonality and purpose the better off i think the more likely we are to find solutions to all these things yeah i mean we're actually filming this right now in the living room of the co-housing community where I live. I live in a, a, an actual co-housing community and the idea was that uh, people wanted to know their own neighbors so everybody has their own apartment with you know kitchen, bathroom, and living room and all that stuff. Some of them are one bedrooms and some of them are efficiencies and some of them are three-story townhouses. But we all share this really big common space. There's a living room with a piano and there's a dining room and a kids room and I libraries and all that stuff. And we eat together as a community a few nights a week and all the kids play at each other's houses and nobody really locks their doors. And I mean, it's kind of like living in the 50s, you know, mm-hmm. high neighbor. And, uh, and it's been right amazing. Right here it's, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah, in the middle of the, of the city. So it's been amazing for our children to grow up in this way because, as, as you said, everybody poking their heads out of the window. Yeah. Everybody knows who my children are. Yeah. Everybody knows that they're safe or that they're not. And, you know... Um, the children enjoy it up to a certain point. You know, when you turn 13, you don't want you don't want these old people knowing your business. So the children tend to disappear at, at a certain age. 
Um, but but yeah, it's been really cool living and, and, and raising children in this in this way. I mean, I, I lived in Boston in the Fenway for ten years, and I did not know a single neighbor, not Is one right? person. I did not know the name of the lady across the hall from me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm also not a outgoing. I mean, I'm not a person that was going to spark conversation. But still, it's that's a little bit weird. Ten years, and I knew not one person. It's just, uh, and that's that's how it is. It know? it gets to a much bigger question of why we collectivize. I, I I think so. We all kind of have a running assumption that that's how human society was structured in these little, you know, in your clan or your village or whatever. And the 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 appeal to collectivize is 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 probably innately human. And what that what that produces, just like you know, our hunger for calories makes us fat. Like now that we have abundance, right. that's what causes obesity because we're we're our bodies are conditioned to seek calories and especially sweet calories. Right. So so in order to in order to to deal with that, we have to recognize that tendency and trait and say, well, I'm not going to do what I'm naturally inclined to do. And I think the, the, the zeal for community and collectivization is kind of like that. What you realize if you're a little village is that if you pull another village in, and so there's got to be some kind of compromise, like maybe we don't have bows and arrows in our houses, but if we have another village here, we're less, we're more insulated from the Huns that may come and so we're going to have bows and arrows and we're going to be two villages and we make right. that compromise and all this happens for for collective bargaining you know for increased production for commodities of scale markets of scale in consumption all these things happen to cause us to push into bigger and bigger sets of people and I th there's probably some good reason for that but just like the, the hunger for calories and sweet, to modify that and to moderate it and to recognize that that left unchecked is going to lead us into bad places. So how do we put some checks and balances on those right. tendencies? How do we put some checks and balances on our nationalism, on our consumerism, on our competition, you know? Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, when I look at the Bible, right? When I look at the teachings of Christ, a person, I who I don't believe is the son of God. Mm -hmm. But the words are great. Yeah. It's like, if you lived that way, that would be great. Mm -hmm. When I read the Constitution of the United States, I'm like, man, there's some smart people that got together and decided how can we have a utopia, and they wrote this thing, and it's amazing. It's so great. If we followed those principles. Well, the devil's in you the know, details, right? If we followed the, the principles laid out in the Declaration of Independence, this would be a perfect society. Um, but it, you know, it's it's just not that possible. And and I, I'm I'm wondering, like with the Google thing, what's the threshold? Mm. You know, a company has 15 people. Can they be not be evil? 20, 100, 200? You know, you have a bakery, mm -hmm. and you are bake the bread, you sell the bread, you market it, you do everything, and then it becomes popular, and you realize I can't do this. I need somebody else. So you hire another baker. You hire another baker, and then it gets so big that now you have another store, and then it gets so big you have three stores and then you don't know anything about managing three stores and it's getting difficult so you have to hire a manager now you're hiring somebody who's not a baker who has no idea about anything about customer service that's not what he does <laughs> he's just about management so he says okay here's where you need to make money he has no idea that this is going to make people upset you know yeah. what i mean it's like you get so big that you can't help but have people making decisions that don't align with 
with why you do what you do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I wonder what that threshold is and how we can, how we can, you know, dial that back. Yeah, I'm not sure. So, and I guess a sort of a final note is, is it good enough to, to be better? Right to say that tomorrow I'm going to be better. Tomorrow I'm going to give away a shirt. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'm not going to go to the mall and look at retail things um, to strive to be better. Because I know that the best thing would be for me to sell all of my possessions and to live in the woods and to uh, help people with every fiber of my muscle. But um, I'm not going to do that. And should I feel guilty that I don't do that, you know? Or is it good enough to say I'm not going to buy a shirt that costs $15 because I just know that's not possible without some sort of slave labor along the way? Or is it okay to say I'm not going to I'm going to research and I'm going to say Nike makes shoes in China, therefore it's got to be bad at some point, mm-hmm. even if I don't know exactly what it is. You know, mm-hmm. or is that fair to Nike? Is it not fair? I, you know, is it okay to just try to do better? Or is it shameful that, that we're not living in poverty I, I think it is I th- I'm hopeful that it is meaningful to do better to make to continue making decisions in favor of humanity in favor of people instead of things that that we can if if we were conditioned to be responsive to to the you know the glossy ads that are supposed to give us meaning in our possessions that we can recondition ourselves to think of people instead, to put, to to make incremental decisions that prioritize people and their well-being over possession and profit. Right. I mean, treat others how you want to be treated is not a biblical thing. It's a moral thing. It's uh, been around forever, forever, and you know that's. As a business, you get to decide. You, you get to decide what kind of business you want to be. How, how quickly do I answer the phone? How nice am I going to be to this customer? Um, and if you asked yourself, how would I want to be treated, that would answer so many questions. Well, it's with, such an easy thing. It's, that's exactly it. And I think that one of, the, one of the things that I was convicted about, Eric and I both, a long time ago, was that we always we were you know we were much more poor when we were young i i, I don't uh, i don't know how we rate now i we do much better now i have a business and we have a large home and so things are work i i i worry much less about paying my right. bills than i ever did when i was very young but <clears throat> but i still worry about it from time to time but the thing is i especially what's fascinating to me is that when they do when they do sociological research, we tend to find that people of lower economic strata are more generous and more giving, which is interesting to me. Yeah. But but it's also the case that <laughs> coming from the bottom of the economic strata in the particular environment that you're in, we we really get hyped up about getting a good deal. And so so you know, where's the sales? How can we save some money? What can we do to get the most out of what we have? And, and we ran our family that way when we were young. We were pretty miserly and always trying to make sure we got a good deal. And at some point, our, we began to think, well, what does it mean to give a good deal? 
what does it mean to benefit, not just to be the beneficiary of something, but to, to be the benefactor, to make sure that people that interact with me are getting a good deal. And that kind of puts you on both sides of the economic yeah, equation. I really like that, yeah. that idea. How can I give a good deal? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's beautiful. All right. Okay. Want to end it there? Let's end it there. All right. Love you. Love you too. Thank you.